0: Amen. You may be seated. Before we get started this morning, as we've gathered this morning to worship the Lord, one of the elements of worship is thanksgiving, and I have not said this to this point since we've planted the church, but I do want to say a special thanks to the Lord for the people who help us in worship each Sunday morning from the families that come to help set up from the musicians who play, those who help set up the communion elements. I praise the Lord for the people he's brought to our church and those that serve. I also want to thank the Lord for the elders that I serve with who help with starting and opening the service with prayer and the psalm reading and also the pastoral prayer. I want to thank the men who come up here and read the scriptures each Sunday morning. I'm very thankful for them. I won't lie to you that I'm especially thankful when I see David Gray get up to read the scriptures. I heard an amen. I think uh, we need to enlist David Gray to do our uh, scripture reading challenge for the next year. So we're all listening to David read the Bible to us. I make a motion. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Well, we thank the Lord for all these good gifts and more. If you will turn with me now... To Ezra chapter 4, we are going to be again in the Old Testament text of Ezra. I see some guests with us this morning. You're probably familiar with the scriptures, but if you're not, if you'll turn to the center of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms. Likely, you'll land in Psalms or Proverbs. Just turn back a few books from Job to Esther to Nehemiah, and then you'll land on Ezra. It's not a very large book compared to most books in the Old Testament, Um, But it is there, and we'll be in Ezra chapter 4 this morning. We're going to look at the first five verses from Ezra 4. And after I read those for us, we will pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles we were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And thus far is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. For your word is powerful and potent, but apart from your Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us, this time will be ineffectual. So please bless me as I preach to be empowered by the Spirit and bless these, your hearers, your children, to hear by the Spirit so that we all might be edified and be raised up into the full image of Him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, one of the subjects that every homeschool or Christian schooled child must at some point become acquainted with during their formative years is the study of the great works of literature that have stood the test of time. This will likely include works like Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress or Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Certainly, students will review Luther's The Bondage of the Will as well as, and this is one of my personal favorites, The Confessions of St. Augustine. That is likely the first autobiographical literature work in the history of mankind, and it is outstanding. You need to get a free PDF offline if you'd like and read through that. It's very, very good. One of the works of recent fame which every homeschooler by now should be thoroughly acquainted with, and I believe in a hundred years will be a timeless classic, which will be analyzed and acclaimed for its literary brilliance, and masterful displays of bravery, courage, and moral virtue is that great work by William Goodman, The Princess Bride. (laughs) So you've heard of it. If I were to give the opening line of the movie, I'd wager that we could likely collectively put together every line from the movie in sequential order, beginning to end. But all humor aside, one scene in particular is important for our study this morning. In pursuit of the Princess Buttercup, having already bested Spanish master swordsman Inigo and outmuscled the Turkish giant fist fighter Fezik, Protagonist-gone-pirate Wesley comes to a table in a field where sits his prized maiden and world-renowned Sicilian intellect Vizzini. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. So, it is down to you, and it is down to me. And so begins Wesley's third test, which he himself gives the title, The Battle of Wits. What follows is a game of pick the poison from two different goblets. No, I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it by now, I hereby revoke your claim to being a homeschooling family. (laughs) I am sure that the young folks in here and most of the adults would like nothing more than a full reenactment of the entire scene with voices and proper inflection. But alas, there is too much. So let me sum up. The rest of Ezra and Nehemiah from today, from chapter 4 on, could be summed up as a long game of the battle of wits. Essentially, there is nothing left from here on in our study, from the break at the end of Nehemiah to the beginning of the New Testament. The Jews face conflict, conflict of all kinds, shapes, and sizes. The returning exiles have, by God's mighty hand, overcome their enslavement to a foreign tyrant, been safely delivered with all their plundered goods and temple treasures back to the promised land, and are now seeking to take that land fully under the lordship of Yahweh God. But the peoples of the land, a small threat in comparison to the hurdles already overcome, attempt for the next several decades to outsmart these returnees in order to remain in the land, continue their pluralistic worship practices, and even to prevent the reestablishment of the exclusive worship of the one true God. Commentator Derek Kidner says that this is the first round in an assault on the integrity of the nation church, an attempt which would be pressed home with every kind of tactic, disarming and menacing, defamatory or obstructive, but always geared towards one objective, and that is assimilation. Well, today we're going to look at the inclusivism that these original or we might call them Proto-Samaritans, you'll have me hear me use that term several times this morning, are going to try and push the people of God into. Before we get too far in the text, though, I want to make a note about how chapter 4 is entirely arranged. If you've got your finger on a page turn, you might look at it with me. It's arranged thematically rather than chronologically. So to this point, our text has been the history of Cyrus and his release of these exiles to the point at which they begin to face conflict. And you see that goes all the way to verse 5. You can think of this as the zoomed-in view dealing with years 1 and 2 of the period of their settling initially in the land, and it gives some detail. There's a decree, a list of returnees, worship foundation, temple foundation, But today's five verses encompasses a time of about 50 years. Next week, we'll look at verse 6. You see a new name in verse 6. You see the name of King Ahasuerus. That's going to jump us forward in the timeline, and even the following verse, in the days of Artaxerxes. Ezra is fast-forwarding for us to give a little bit of his timeline, to give a big example of the long battle of wits game, and then, if you look all the way down at verse 24, he comes back again to Darius, king of Persia. Now, why did Ezra write chapter 4 in this way? This will be helpful for our study over the next several weeks. Why did he write in this thematic approach? Well, the answer, I think, is that he was not a part of this first return. He heard word of the struggles that the initial exiles went through, but to give you a concrete example of which he was an eyewitness, he fast-forwards to his own time where we get to see the opposition faced by those returnees and to show that even at that point in history, God was able to overcome all of his adversaries just as he promised. Now... We've zoomed in to some extent. Let's pan back out. And I want to remind you again that what we're seeing in Ezra and Nehemiah is a new exodus. God delivering his people from captivity and settling them in the promised land. But remember what happened in the days of Joshua. What prevented the initial exiles from Egypt coming into the promised land and taking or making a total and complete conquest, a peerless establishment of the reign and worship of God over his own people. What was the main obstacle to their success? And that is this. They failed to drive out the peoples of the land. This led to a breach of the Old Covenant, and a multi-faith inclusivism. All the wickedness in the days of the judges was due to this liturgical integration with the surrounding nations. So the big question we are faced with in this grand theological narrative right here in Ezra 4 is this. Will the people get it right this time? Will they answer the local rabble with not just one flat denial, but repeated refusals to pollute the worship of God. And ultimately, will they drive out these foreigners once and for all? Notice in verse 1, even in ancient times, news gets around. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, do you see that someone or some group of people, these adversaries of the Lord, have caught wind of all the hype that's going down in Jeru's peace? That's actually what Jerusalem means. It means Jeru's peace. Do you see what Ezra calls these people who come out of the woodworks? He makes no questions about it. He calls them adversaries. From the very first mention of their presence here, the locals are not counted as allies. We won't even call them co-belligerents. I want you to see here two things. First, the people of Israel knew who they were. That is, the chosen exiles. They knew what group they were a part of. You remember that long list of names that we had back At the beginning of this text in chapter 2, those names were important. These are God's elect, those who would comprise his kingdom rebuilding team. Their ancestry and connection to the family of God was their work permit that allowed them to actually participate in the building. Let me ask you a question. Does it matter in the new covenant who builds the kingdom of God? Yes, it does. Peter says it does. You know that we've been in a study of Peter for most of our first year. 1 Peter, we went all the way from chapter 2, verse 8, to the end of chapter 5. Right before we picked up at Christ the King, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter addresses this issue of those who would themselves be built into the temple of God and themselves would also build. They would be that holy priesthood. They would be those who were set apart through Christ to actually bring sacrifices that were pleasing to God. Let's be as specific as we can. To whom is the honor of building the kingdom of Jesus bestowed and to only whom is it bestowed? Peter says in verse 2, or excuse me, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is in the context of us being built and ourselves building the kingdom of God. So Peter goes on to say, the honor is for you who believe. This is the glory of the new covenant, beloved. This is the betterness of the new covenant. All who are in the new covenant are cleansed by the blood of Christ and set apart to serve in the kingdom of Christ as the royal priesthood of Christ. All who are in the new covenant receive the promise of the the eternal inheritance. So who is allowed to serve? It mattered to those in Ezra's day. It matters to us as well. Those who are called. Who is called? Those, Romans tells us, for whom... Christ died. The people of Israel knew who they were, but they also knew who they, that is their adversaries, were. There was a clear distinction. How do you think they knew so much about these people that dwelt in the land when they returned? How did they know where they came from, their motives and their desire to collaborate in this rebuilding work? You've probably heard the saying before, that those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Glenn Sunshine, his history professor, I appreciate, has his own version of that saying. He says, those who learn from the past are doomed to watch those who don't learn from the past repeat it. And unfortunately, it sometimes feels that way. Though it's a little tongue-in-cheek, there's truth to that statement. Zerubbabel's people can't see into the future. They haven't been given a prophetic vision of how this is all going to play out except for the prophecies of the one who would come and set them free from their ultimate slavery in sin. But at least this is true. At this point in our study of Ezra, they are determined that they will not be the cause of another exile. We know how we got into this mess. We're not going to go back and do the same thing over again. We've learned our lesson. Don't know about everybody else around us, but we're not going to make the same mistake again. This is essentially to say they had a good working knowledge of what had happened to get them into this place, who was responsible for that, and how to prevent it from happening again. I want to quote to you something from 2 Kings that is in their minds as they return and seek to rebuild and want to rebuild pure and right before the Lord. This is 2 Kings 17. "...the exiles in Ezra's day knew that the king of Assyria had brought people from Babylon, Kutah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and he placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities." And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Now, if you've read this story, we've gone through this recently in our reading plan. You'll remember that a request was made for a priest of Israel to come back to the land in order to teach the people the laws of the God of that land in order to stop the lions one was provided and this kind of jamanji situation quieted down a little bit the proto-samaritans the bible tells us feared the lord but it also says later in first kings 17 or second kings 17 that they served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away To this day, they do according to the former manner. That is what they used to do, serve their own gods. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Do you see why Ezra calls them adversaries? He knows. And the people in the land that day knew. These are not people that we're going to be partnering with. These are not people who can build alongside of us. These are syncretists. They want to take the worship exclusively reserved for Yahweh and distribute it out to all of the gods. They want to pollute the salt of true worship by sprinkling it in devotion to every unclean thing. If worshiping anything was a pie-baking contest... The Samaritans wanted to have their fingers in all of it. Well, why did they do this? Why? What motivates humanity to this kind of participatory behavior? Why didn't they just stay in their villages and worship their own gods and let Israel do their own thing? Why did they go up to Jerusalem to see what was going on? The Bible says that they heard that the returned exiles were building the temple of the Lord. Why did they do this? Before Tammy and I moved to Anderson County last year, we lived in a neighborhood in South Knox that adjoined the property of South Oil High School. We were just one street over from the football stadium, and one of the things that let us know that fall was fast approaching were the sounds of fall football in late August. The first game almost took us by a surprise. We'd been sitting at the dinner table with the kids or doing family worship in the living room, and we'd hear a cheer so loud that it shook our house a little bit. For several years, the speaker system was broken. We couldn't hear the play calls or the announcements, but we could hear when somebody scored. And there was all this excitement, and the kids would always say, Dad, can we go to the football game?" You hear it. There's something in human nature that says, ooh, what's going on? I want to be a part of that. Today, in a sinful way, we might call this FOMO, or the fear of missing out. You remember last week that Chad read that there was a great shout that went up from the people as the temple foundation was laid. And that foundation laying ceremony, very last verse, of chapter 3, was heard from far away. What did these folks do when they heard the cry coming from Jerusalem? They came running. Do you know what FOMO really is? What fear of missing out really is? It is, at its core, self-worship. It is placing your feelings of belonging and happiness above your duty. Paul says of the fear of missing out, their God is their belly. Now, the Lord has certainly done some incredible things in our first year, the building that He's given us, the resolution that we were a part of, the growth in our church, the answers to prayer, and all this foundation work brings with it a lot of hype. It makes a lot of noise or a lot of ripples or waves. And that has the tendency to bring people over to see what the jollification is all about. This can be a good thing, but here's a few things that your elders would like you to think with us on. First, remember that it is important who you build with. It is important who you build with. Don't forget that the Bible reveals a grand conflict between ultimately two teams. That's it. Two opposing sides, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, the seed of the serpent, and her offspring, the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head, that is Christ, and you shall bruise his heel. God presents us at the very beginning of Scripture with two teams and just two teams. There is team lion, And there is team serpent. You're on the lion's side or you're on the witch's side. It's always been a battle between the house of Gryffindor and the house of Slytherin. Jesus repeats the same thing in his parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. Paul says something similar to the Corinthians when he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has Righteousness with lawlessness. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baliel? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For, in Peter's vein of thinking, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, do what? Go out from their midst. Separate. We can't work together. We can't build if we're not on the same side. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now when you think in terms of separation, we're not applying that to tasks like evangelism. We're not applying that to when you go into the store and you relate to that lady over the counter, that man who owns that local business, whom you're not sure if they're a Christian or not. Our duties, Jesus says, are clear. We're to make disciples of all of the nations. There is no unclean moment when we evangelize because Jesus was not touched by uncleanness and became unclean. Through his power and by his example, what we go out into the world to touch with the gospel of Christ becomes clean. That's our mission. That's our goal. But what we do here in this sacred space when the saints assemble to worship the Lord is a duty for the people of Jesus Christ. This is why covenant membership matters to us and why we take so seriously the membership interviews and wanting to hear the testimonies of these people who are joining our fellowship. We understand as your elders that we will either let in sheep or we will let in wolves. There's only two options. Both of those can do damage to a church, Both the sheep and the wolf. But one will only do damage and a whole lot more of it. If any man be in Christ, we welcome him. It is likely that he will be able to partner with us in the ministry of building this new Christendom. But we should have no qualms about telling someone who is outside of the faith or even a factional person within the faith that they have no part in this ministry. And we don't. We will say no. Secondly, not only is it important who you build with, but it is important to know why those who build want to build. It's important to know the why, the onus. What is it that makes them come to want to join this work? I've said in the past that motives matter. Do you see a little bit of yourself, beloved, In these proto Samaritans. Think about that for a minute. Is worship here excellent? So long as things line up with your view of what worship should look like. This church would be honoring God at its fullest if I were an elder or if I got to pick the songs. Or if I were consulted about how to secure this building. Or if I were allowed to show everyone how gifted a teacher I am. If people would listen to me and drop the whole alcohol thing, then we could honor God. If this, if that, so on and so forth. Let me ask you a question, beloved. Who is that worship, ultimately, at its core, when you really press down, who's it really about? Is it about God, or is it about you? Are you suffering from a Christian case of the fear of missing out? We all know that this is childish behavior. Have you ever seen an older brother or sister walking around in home with food in their hands? And they walk by a younger child. What is likely to happen? Hey, where'd you get that? You're not allowed to have that. Did mom tell you you could have a snack? No, she didn't. It's not snack time yet. Hey, can I have a snack? No, I don't have to ask mom. If you've got one, I can have one too. I know none of you all's children do that. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, God isn't going to share his worship with anybody else. If he hasn't put you in a place directly to decide how to or, or participate in the leading of the worship, you don't get to hold back in worshiping God until it, it goes the way you want it to go. Jesus commands us all to come and worship the Father. If you want to know whether or not your why is in the right place, why am I here? Why do I want to build? If you want to know if your why is in the right place, What happens to your heart when you don't get your way, but somebody else does? That's how you know. Do you have Christian FOMO? You'll know when somebody else gets the nod, and you don't how you respond. What happens when that other brother gets raised up? Or gets asked to play in the music? Or that sister gets asked to help decorate the sanctuary, and you weren't invited? We know for a fact that these early Samaritans had no real desire to worship Yahweh. We already read from 2 Kings 17. But we know from this chapter because when they were told no, what did they do? They started a fight. Uh uh-uh, uh, that's not fair. We're going to tattletale on you. We're going to write the king so and so and get him to stop this. It's childish. It's behavior that needs to be repented of. And if you find it in yourself, repent and come and worship God with all of your heart. Look down with me at verse 3. These proto-Samaritans have come. They've heard the returned exiles. They are adversaries. They've said to Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses, Let us build with you. We worship God just like you do. But in verse 3, you see the response of the children of the captivity. That's actually what they're called here in this passage, in the literal Hebrew. This response was a resolute no given by the men of the congregation, the heads of fathers' houses. They flat refused the people's offer to collaborate on the work, and they ground their reasons in the decree made by Cyrus, their answer contains no hint of an ethnic prejudice that will develop later on. You see that in the New Testament. It doesn't allude to a concern for the Samaritans' ceremonial unfitness for the work. The answer is given, you have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God. Now, just a brief pause. Exclusion? will probably awaken in anyone's heart who's still dealing with it that hibernating egalitarian that's down there. How can we exclude anybody? Don't they have a right to build too? What's wrong with letting everybody participate? More hands make less work. Can't we all get a trophy or at least a snow cone? But God doesn't think this way. No, God is not an egalitarian. Lest anyone think that this Old Testament text is unchristian is less than Christ-like. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus as he evangelized the woman at the well who, by the way, was a Samaritan. Jesus said to her, you worship what you don't even know. How's that for inclusivism? You worship what you don't even know, but we worship what we do know because salvation comes from the Jews. He's not ashamed of the truth. We shouldn't be either. In order to worship God, brothers, you have to know God, you must be known by God. It is not enough to associate with the people of God or tithe or love the things written in the Bible. You must know the Lord. The only way to know Him is by His powerful working of the Spirit. Get a belly full of your own sin and by faith, turn from that steaming pile that it is and look up and see Christ as the only hope for your salvation. To sum it up, you have to say no before you say yes. Do you see that in the text right here? Before they worship God, they've got to start by saying no. Huh? This is what we will absolutely not do. Our forefathers did that. They included the people of the land in the worship. What happened? The whole thing fell apart. They broke the covenant. God sent them away into exile. No, we'll start by repenting. No, we will not do the same thing. Before you can say yes to God and yes to Christ, you have to say no to your sin. Let me give you a point of application first. Beloved, we say this often, but at Christ the King and at every biblical church, it is Christ or nothing. Nothing. You can't worship God while maintaining a shrine of idols in your heart. What did Jesus say at the beginning of Mark? Repent and believe the gospel. The Christian evangelical gospel message today is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you need to do that. But you can't hold all these idols in your arms and say, yeah, I believe in him too. You're one of these folks. Yes, we've got all of our gods. What's one more? Come on. We worship Him like you do. Teach us how. And then we'll teach you how to worship these ones over here. Jesus says, no. First, repent. First, you've got to say no before you say yes. Now, I will say that repenting of your sin is an ongoing thing. You will be doing it, likely, for the rest of your life. And if Christ is everything to you, and you hate your sin, and you find that you are daily turning from it, and turning to Christ, you have no need to question your salvation, no matter how often you fail. Remember Christ's example, 70 times 7. Don't count, just keep forgiving. And that's the way that our Father in heaven is, for those who are in Christ. But have you tried to come to Christ, but you haven't laid down your family yet? Have you tried to come to Christ, But you won't give up your job that's a security for you or your hopes for your retirement or your farmlands or your beloved car or gun collection or perceived control over your own decisions. Beloved, with these things in here, we cannot rightly worship God. What did Jesus say? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life, these are the things that I need. They're ultimately going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, repents, vomits it up, gets rid of it. For the sake of Jesus, will find it. And beloved, I'm concerned about this. A church like ours that places so much emphasis on family and generational change and businesses and theology can easily make those things primary. They can easily forget that Christ alone is king. Nothing else deserves worship. He is first and supreme. To him alone belongs the praise. But there's good news. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news for every one of us, regardless whether or not you're in Christ today or not. Repent. Say no to your sin and turn to Christ and receive Him. He's never said no to someone who comes to Him in repentance and faith. Not one time. Now, in addition to that, I would encourage us as Christians like Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the heads of the father's houses, to be ready to say no, not just to sin, but to good things in our lives for the sake of what's best. At the conference a couple of weeks ago, Michael Foster opened up with a word to those assembled. He said that his hope and desire for the conference was that people would not come and write down a list of a dozen or more things that they hoped to do after the conference, only to do none of them. Instead, he said said that he wanted each of us to take away maybe one or two things and then go home and get them done. Later that night, John Moody said something to drive it further home. He said that Christian conferences are basically short-term youth mission trips for adults. You get away and stay somewhere different and learn a bunch of things that you will forget when you go home and have no real impact on your life. He's right. It might seem easy for the returned exiles to say no to the unbelieving locals. But Christians struggle with saying no to the good for the sake of the best. Sisters, let me speak to you for a moment. I love the drive that you ladies have to become the best women, wives, mothers, homemakers, so on and so forth. Many of you have had little training in the Titus 2 realm and are eager to learn as much as you can and pass it on to the next generation. These are good and right desires. Here's a good rule of thumb to remember, sisters. If you think generationally, you can be confident that you will likely only pass on the things to your children that you do with excellence. Thinking generationally, what you do with excellence is likely what your children are to retain. But you're not going to pass on a host of things that you do with mediocrity. Who doesn't want to learn to sew, or chicken farm or brew 8% alcoholized kombucha <laughs> or make non-GMO chaff-flavored bubblegum for your kids? But those, those things are not sinful. They may not be what's best right now. Ask your husbands for advice on what would be best for you as his helpmeet to focus on right now Choose a few things to get really good at and pass that on to the next generation. You can say no to the workout group, the kombucha group, or the how to turn your placenta into digestive enzymes group. Uh. That's a thing, y'all. At the conference, former Army Ranger Nate Spearing addressed the group briefly with a charge something like this. He said, men, you came into this conference with your come and take it t-shirt. And you're about 150 pounds overweight. You ain't taking nothing from nobody. Sisters, that's why your men came home and wanted to start a workout group. (laughs) Because if we can't rule ourselves, how do we rule you in our households? We can't. It was convicting for all of us. Work out if you can, but don't feel the pressure to be a part of something that isn't the most important thing for you right now. Men, the same goes for us. Our women struggle with saying no for several reasons. One of the main ones is that we act effeminate when we say yes to every invite from the brothers because we have FOMO and don't want to be left out. The ladies' version of FOMO is fear of missing out. The man's version is fear of man's opinion. Brothers, learn to say no and then pass that gift on to your wife and kids. In addition, men should be the one to have the hard conversation. It's right here in the text. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, heads of fathers' houses. Who's having the conversation? The men are. You have 0% to do with this project. That probably wasn't the nicest thing that they heard that day. The men stepped up to say that. Don't send your wife, brothers, to deal with the hard stuff. You will have to practice some self-denial here. Here's a simple rule. Prioritize what is necessary over what is optional. Also, monitor the phone and online use in your home. Is your wife or your children wasting time on a phone or online? Even in pursuit of a lot of really good things. Men need to shepherd this. And they need to be the ones that have the hard conversation. Young people, children in the room. Start building into your life the ability to control your own appetites and rule your world. Don't be carried about by every little thing that the other kids are doing, even though it may be good and seem like a lot of fun. So what if those other kids run cross-country? It's okay that you don't. And by the way, children, you don't have to say yes to dessert every single Sunday. Eat what your mom puts on your plate Honor God, practice some self-denial. I want, it's my desire that the Jones household be excellent at music. Tammy already is, and we're going to pass that on to our children in hopes that it is going to be a generational heritage for our family. That may mean that we don't get to do the BMX sports or try out for the swim team, and that's okay. Some of you all I know do things like that, Yes, there's a desire there. Our kids come to us. Well, can we do this? Can we do that? We have to be excellent at just a number of things. We can't dilly-dally in everything, and then we end up passing nothing on. So think about that. I'm not saying it's never okay just to go try something out. Maybe we will try out BMX biking one day. Who knows? But I don't have to be a part of every single group, spread myself so thin that I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. Now, to conclude, with verses 4 and 5, the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed the officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. So here's kind of where that battle of wits begins. Once they are given the cold shoulder... The Samaritans put on their antagonist hats. They seek to discourage God's people. They seek to make them afraid. They engage in bribery to get the government on their side. And they engage in a long game of relentless efforts to keep the temple of God from being built. This is going to go on for a number of years. And I'm sad to say, to some extent, it will prove ultimately successful. For a season, but it will prove successful. The people of Israel will give up building the house of God. They will go back to their own homes and they will work on those and just chill out. They'll hope things get better, but they won't. In fact, God will actively, we learn from Haggai and Zechariah, make things worse for them. Because they quit. Let me say two more things in application as we close this morning. We are unwilling to say no to things in our life because of fear. How will they react? What will they do to me? What might they think or say? Brethren, Jesus has taught us that when we put our hand to the plow, we're not allowed to turn around. If you do, he says you aren't worthy to serve in the kingdom of God. Now, I need you to listen to me. He isn't saying that you lose your salvation if you have a moment of fear and indecision and you even turn away. He's saying that you must repent of fear. If you don't and you continue in unbelief, you are only proving that you never put your hand to the plow in the first place. There's only one stream to drink from there's only one fear that we really need to overcome, one fear that overcomes all fears. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was also driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, or even as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And Aslan concludes by saying, there is no other stream. There is one thing that we ought to fear, and it is God. We ought not fear saying no or being left out or excluding those who are not a part of the kingdom of Jesus from our worship. Jesus promised us that if we come to him, we will face persecution in this world. He promised us that. And this is a world that he himself has already overcome. And, as you know, he is the only river of life. There is no other stream. I'll say, beloved, that things are likely to get more difficult for us in Anderson County before they get better. My prayer has been that Clinton, Tennessee, will be a city which in its entirety confesses the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. In God's power, this is not an unreasonable request for us to make or ask. But it will come through the road of opposition and persecution just like it did for these exiles. Paul preached the gospel, and he was beaten and decapitated for it. The early church was lynched and burned alive. The reformers were driven from society and hunted. And we? We're looked at like we're crazy and we get called names. It's time to be done with fear. The persecution will likely get worse. The technocratically controlled... AI managed, social credit monitored job of the state may do some nasty stuff to Christians in the future. But be we resolved that they will not take away true worship from the true saints of the Most High God. Chesterton once said, Reform means that we want to put something back into shape. And we do know what shape it is he goes on to say the christian lives in the light of eternity therefore he can afford to be patient so satan and his serpent team are still playing the same battle of wits game with the church today paul said that he wasn't going to be outwitted by satan are we What is that thing or things that you need to say no to today in order to rightly worship Jesus Christ? I exhort you, confess it to someone before you leave today. What activity or group are you trying to be a part of that you need to drop so you can focus on building the kingdom with excellence? What fear is Satan employing with great success right now in you, perhaps the fear of missing out, or the fear of man's opinion or something else. And you need to drop it right now so that you can fight alongside of this church. Beloved, this is a long game. These proto-Samaritans are going to fight the long game. We have to be ready for the long game. But we know this. The temple will be built. The bride will be adorned and ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's as good as done. So, let's not give up building. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it exhorts us and encourages us to holiness. Would you please bring repentance in every place where it is necessary today? Would you please prevent us with 100% efficiency From being able to hide our sin. Would you bring it into the light. So that we could be. The kind of people. That are humbled. And worship you rightly. Would nothing else get in the way. Of the worship. Of Jesus Christ. Especially our fears. Please Lord. Do this powerful work in us because you're the only one who can. And we know that through Jesus Christ, you have promised that you would do so. And you are faithful to keep your promises. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.